Mark Zuckerberg told The New Yorker the news source he definitely follows is TechMeme. So listen to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, the podcast anyone who's anyone in Silicon Valley listens to every day. In just 15 to 20 minutes, you get a rundown of what happened in the world of tech with all the headlines, context, commentaries, and tweets from all the biggest players. New episodes every day at 5 p.m. Eastern. Search your favorite podcast app for Ride Home and subscribe to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Zenni offers thousands of affordable eyewear styles, starting at just $6.95. No ridiculous markups, no hassles, just quality, affordable eyewear delivered right to you. Visit Zenni today at zenni.com slash CNN. Good evening. Once again, today we have seen a remarkable outpouring here in Squirrel Hill and across the city of Pittsburgh. Outpouring of kindness and compassion and people supporting one another, at times literally so. Outside Tree of Life Synagogue, people linked arms today. They sang songs of faith and healing and did what they could to fill up a space where otherwise only pain would dwell. And that space is vast. The pain is still fresh tonight and fierce and is felt by so many people. Two funerals were held today, one for Dr. Jerry Rabinowitz, another for the Rosenthal brothers, Cecil and David. In the coming days, the stories of eight more lives will be told and the absence of eight more souls will be felt. Also today, President Trump's visit and the protest that met him here, it was, best we can remember, unprecedented for a president of the United States not to be welcomed by everybody at a moment like this. And although it will be a focus tonight, it will neither be the sole focus nor the thing that we look at first, which is why we begin tonight, and it's really our privilege, too, with a closer look at how friends and neighbors, celebrities, even total strangers, express their love and their appreciation for two very special individuals. Gary Tuckman joins us now for, for that. You uh, went to the funerals for uh, David uh, and Cecil. It, it's amazing to me the outpouring of people who went, I mean, filling up the, the synagogue for them. David and Cecil were loved. Cecil, 59, David, 54, belonged to the synagogue, loved going here. A mile away from here in another synagogue called Road of Shalom, more than 1,000 seats, every seat full for the funeral mm-hmm. service. And more than 150 people standing in the back and standing on the side. And I heard of more than 100 members, past and present, of the, the Steelers came. And that was remarkable. The Pittsburgh Steelers are a very important institution in this city. Right. And more than 100 former players and current players came in for the viewing where the caskets were in front. And the ownership, mm. Art Rooney II, came in also. These are important people in this community. They wanted to pay their respects. It's really important to mention, these two brothers were mentally disabled. They could not read. They could not write. But boy, they could talk, mm. and they joked, and they had fun, and everyone loved them. Cecil was an usher at the synagogue. Everyone saw them. Every everyone they saw were sort Cecil. Of the, uh, the unofficial greeters, apparently, at the synagogue. Well, <laughs> right during the eulogy today, their sister and brother-in-law spoke, and the brother-in-law said that Cecil could have been the mayor of Squirrel Hill if he uh, wanted to be. That's how popular he uh, was. But the, during the eulogy, the sister and brother-in-law said they were kind, they were thoughtful, they were gentle giants, they were big guys. Mm. But they were non-judgmental, and they were very innocent. And that's the important thing. They just loved life and never knew there were any problems. And that's the tragic irony here, the sad thing, that these men who were so innocent and so vulnerable, that in this building behind us, someone so violent ended their lives in this building they love so much. And it's so hurtful and so sad. When I, when I hear you say that, I, mean, I, I, you know, I can only imagine what was going through their minds when this person came in, the 
astonishment they must have felt since they were really nothing, felt nothing but compassion. And, and that's when we talked to everyone who was inside, that's the same thing they said. They just couldn't imagine this could happen to such two fine and nice and innocent men. And we talked to so many people as they came out. So many people said they were these brothers' friends. And I want you to listen, Anderson, and I want our viewers to hear what some of these friends told us. The, the heart of Squirrel Hill is Forbes and Murray. Okay, we should change the names of the streets, one being Cecil and one being David. Okay, if we can't do that, okay, then there should be a park, okay, that for Cecil and David, because their memory should be a blessing and continue forever. I don't have any recollections of being at the Tree of Life and Cecil not being there. He was there... Before you got there. Before I got there, uh, he was usually the one to open the door for for me and my family, and he was the one to reserve my seat for me and my family when we sat in the back uh, with the rabbi's family. And if I happened to step out for more than a couple minutes, he would chase me down and, and, and usher me back to my seat. And what was beautiful about the service, Anderson, in the synagogue, it wasn't just Jews. It was Christians. It was Muslims, it was atheists, it was everybody. It was black, it was brown, it was white. The whole community came out. Everyone loved these two men. Wow. I'm so glad you were, you were able to be there and tell us about it, Gary. Thank you very much. Uh, there will certainly uh, be missed, as will Dr. Rabinowitz, his funeral at the JCC, the Jewish Community Center, just a few blocks from here, drew so many people. They overflowed the building and stretched down the block. He was, like the Rosenthal's, a pillar of the congregation and a fixture in this community someone who showed such compassion and humanity toward HIV AIDS patients at a time when compassion was often eclipsed by caution. We're talking about the, the late 1980s, and if not just caution, but outright fear. When others shrank away from patients in need, Dr. Rabinowitz, who was a young doctor then, embraced them. That was not forgotten today, and it won't be forgotten soon. And later, you're going to hear from one of his patients a bit later in the program, more right now on the president's visit and the way it was received by uh, many people here. Bluntly put, many did not want him to come. Not a single political figure in either party actually accompanied him, though they had been invited. He was greeted at the airport by an Air National Guard colonel, commander of the 171st Air Refueling Wing, as well as the colonel's wife. He was met here at Tree of Life by the uh, sound of protesters marching just a few blocks away. They were kept away from the immediate area. Our Caitlin Collins is here with details of his visit. Um, there were certainly questions about what would happen, where would the president would go today. We really didn't know up until the last minute where exactly he was he was going to go. Did the White House? I mean, it was a was bit it of a scramble? scramble, to say the least. Even the city of Pittsburgh, the mayor said they weren't aware that the president's plans to come were official until the press secretary announced it yesterday during that White House press briefing. But the president came. He made his first shop, the Tree of Life Synagogue. He went inside just to the entrance with the rabbi and the first lady, still Melania scene, Trump. So still a crime scene. The FBI agents still inside there today, so they couldn't go very far, very far. So they just went to the entrance there. While they were in there, just a private ceremony, no cameras or any reporters in there. They lit a candle for each of the 11 victims from Saturday's shooting. Then they came outside where all the cameras were waiting in this makeshift memorial over here that the community has put um, so lovingly, these flowers, these balloons. And they went to each of these stars, each one bearing a name of one of the victims, and put stones on each one of them while uh, the First Lady Melania Trump put white roses on them. It was also very nice. It seemed like the, the, the rabbi, Rabbi Myers, was also kind of 
uh, telling them uh, about each of the people. That's what uh, it seemed like at each star. It did, because they would go to each star and they would linger for a few minutes. And it did seem they were in private conversation. We couldn't hear them, but it did seem they were saying that. And we should note the rabbi, Jeffrey Myers, who survived that attack, was one of the only people that uh, was welcoming the president and said he did welcome him here to come now. Not in general. Some others said he was welcome to come in a week from now after the dead were buried. He was the one of the very few in this community who welcomed President Trump now. They then went to the, to the hospital. Then they went to UPMC Presbyterian, that's the hospital nearby, where a lot of these victims were treated. And the president was there uh, visiting with them. He visited not only with the medical staff who treated these patients, but also with the police officers who ran into the synagogue when a lot of other people were trying to get out and trying to leave. And and several visited. of them were wounded. Several of them are wounded. Some have been discharged. One is still in the intensive care unit. We should note that. The White House did note that. He spent over 80 minutes there visiting with them before finally leaving and going back to Washington. It is startling that a number of uh, elected officials were invited by the White House to accompany the president uh, flying here and for one reason or another chose not to. A lot of them declined it. It wasn't just elected officials here locally. When the president typically goes somewhere, flying with him on Air Force One are those elected officials representing the state and then greeting him at the airport are the local officials. None of that happened today. As you just showed, it was the member of the military there greeting the president, the first lady, and the members of his, his administration. But that was it. That's a really rare thing. I don't think we've ever seen that in any trip the president has taken domestically since he took office so far. But that was the only person to greet the president today, and no elected officials were traveling with him. All right. Caitlin Collins, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. The uh, Pittsburgh Police Department today gave a status report on the officers who were hurt or wounded uh, during the shooting. Caitlin was just talking about that. One was shot in the hand. Another suffered a graze wound and or shrapnel wound to the head. Both have been released from the hospital, thankfully. Two others, uh, Timothy Matson and Daniel Mead, remain hospitalized. To their great good fortune, Pittsburgh is home to some of the finest, finest medical care on the planet. With me now, one of the professionals who, who makes it possible, Dr. Donald Neely, who chairs the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of, of Pittsburgh Medical School and the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Also with us is Pittsburgh uh, City Councilwoman Erica Strasburger. Thank you so much for being with us. I, I know it's been a very busy couple of days for both of you and a very trying couple of days for both of you. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the, the, the people who are still hospitalized, how, how they're doing? There are three people still at UPMC Presbyterian two of whom are in the intensive care unit. Both are improving. They're no longer receiving assisted ventilation Mm -hmm. and showing the real signs of recovery right now. There's a third person who's also in the hospital, not in an intensive care unit, again, showing signs of recovery. Uh, I visited one person at the hospital yesterday and and met with her her family, uh, and it was so extraordinary just to... uh, I mean, she seemed in great... You know, as her mother was killed, her mother's 97 years old, but her entire family was there, gathered around... Um, and and sort of keeping their their spirits up. Really an incredible moment, not only between uh, an injured person and their family members, but the outpouring of support from almost every direction really is palpable when you visit with the family. What do you want people to know about about this community and what's going to happen moving forward, how this community moves forward? Well, as you can see from the, the past couple of days, this is a community of neighbors helping neighbors. That's what we've seen. And neighbors wanting to be together right now, finding solace with one another. Um, I think there, it, the sadness and the grief is soon going to turn into a call for action of some sort. I know for, for me as an elected official, um, I feel responsible for my constituents. And I, um, I also understand it was Jeffrey, uh, Rabbi Jeffrey Meyer's call to elected officials and leaders to eradicate hate 
from their words and their actions. And I pledge today in city council to do just that. And I would call other leaders to do the same, uh, to lead with compassion and love. You were there when the president visited today. Can you tell me about the visit? Uh, we had a room set up adjacent to the hospital uh, care areas where four different patients and their families and friends uh, were collected along with the medical staff. The president visited with each individual uh, patient and their family members, and then with not only the medical staff from the hospital, but the police officers from the scene, EMS providers, and the uh, medical director uh, for the city and the public safety director. So he listened to what their stories were of both the event and their recovery and interacted with each. How long uh, would it go on for, do you think? Uh, In that session with the four families, it was a half hour, maybe 40 minutes, and he spent a considerable amount of time with each group of people that he stopped with. Mm. Were you uh, in favor of the president coming today, or what, what were your thoughts on it? Well, really, like I said, my first responsibility is is to my constituents. And over the last couple of days, as the announcement was made that the president might be visiting, I've heard loud and clear through phone calls and emails that um, they were extreme. My constituents were extremely concerned about his visit, that it would add to the trauma of a very raw situation here in Squirrel Hill. And um, I have to respect that. At the same time, I have to respect that there are members uh, and leaders in the Jewish community and perhaps some families of the victims who found comfort in his visit. The, the funerals obviously be, began today, three, three funerals. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting to see. I, I talked to um, uh, one of the leaders of the Muslim community today who uh, has been behind the fundraising, who's been raised more than, I think, $150,000 at this point. He was on with a rabbi who he's had a long relationship with. There's the, the bond, you know, in the wake of something like this, often on television you see sort of people of different faiths coming together. They made the point that this isn't something just for TV cameras today, that this is a relationship that actually has been going on for years and years in this community. Yeah, I think the, the multi-faith effort that was pulled together for the vigil on Sunday is a testament to that. Um, how else would you be able to pull together something in less than a day that showed so many faiths and so many different types of people coming together um, unless those bonds were, uh, were already there? I don't want to overstate it, but yes, those bonds were, were already there. They've been working closely together yeah. for years and years. Well, Doctor, we appreciate all your efforts and everybody at the hospital. Thank you so much. Thank you for yeah, having us. It was us. really an honor to, to go there yesterday. And Kelsey, thank you so thank much. We really so appreciate much. it. Uh, obviously, a lot of difficult days and weeks and months ahead. I want to dig deeper now into how this is all unfolding on, on the national stage. Joining us for that is CNN political analyst David Gergen, Gloria Borger, as well as Carl Bernstein. David, it just in, in light of the fact that some local officials thought this was an ill-timed visit with, with funerals taking place and maybe taking resources away, do you think the president was right to, to come here today? I think he was right to go to Pittsburgh, not today. Uh, it became an extremely awkward day for the president. Uh, you, he did the right thing and wanted to go and comfort families. Uh, but it, it, with the awkwardness started right out from the fact that he arrived basically with his wife alone. He was not met at the airport. Uh, he uh, w- was met with lots and lots of protesters in the streets. Uh, he did not, apparently. Uh, he met with the families of those who had been wounded, as far as I can tell, and this may be wrong, but I'm not sure he met with the families of those who 
and lost their lives. Uh, he had, and, and he left in silence. Our presidents, when they've gone to the days like this, you think of Barack Obama or George W. Bush or Bill Clinton, they all spoke out and gave meaning to what happened and, and tried to be healers. They came to be known as the mourners in chief. And it is an important responsibility of the president. I'm, I wish they, I wish he'd come another day when he might have been able to fulfill a lot of those kind of needs for these families. Gloria, CNN is reporting that the president chose to visit today uh, because it it was the best day essentially for his schedule since he has a string of of campaign rallies that start tomorrow. And they thought it would be awkward if, you know, he came here and then went straight to a campaign rally. It seems like they didn't consider the idea of maybe canceling a a campaign rally. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm wondering what you make of, of, you know, him coming here as he did. Well, look, this was clearly done uh, because of the president's schedule and because of his convenience. He's got 11 rallies coming up, and the president wants to get to every one of them. You know that he has been very involved in this campaign. And uh, don't forget, they don't want to mix a rally and, and the kind of a visit he did today. I mean, on Saturday night, he had a rally right after the shooting. And I think there was a lot of agreement that that did not work out so well. Remember, the president said to everyone, should I tone down my remarks? Maybe I'll tone down my remarks. It just didn't it, it, it didn't work. And what struck me is also what struck David was kind of the loneliness of all of this today, the president and his wife walking down alone uh, from Air Force One, not being greeted with uh, Ivanka and Jared. But there wasn't a sense of community. We want you there. There there was a sort of a, a, a sense that, you know, the president believed he needed to be there. And I do think he needed to go at some point. But there wasn't support from the community. I mean, it's stunning. Remember, remember Barack Obama going to Newtown or, or Bill Clinton after Oklahoma City. They were wanted and they spoke. And I think maybe it was right that the president did not speak today and that all of his communication was kept Carl, private. Carl, I mean, to be fair, the president insisted on, on visiting Pittsburgh today because over the weekend, uh, he said he would, he, you know, he would do it long before anyone knew about objections from local officials here. So, I mean, he certainly did keep his promise in terms of what he had previously said he would do. He kept his promise. I think we need to look at this from a different point of view, and that is that the presidential pulpit of Donald Trump is an incendiary device. It has become an IED, that he spews division and hate Uh, and disunity. And so we've had this horrible slaughter in Pittsburgh, which is a great opportunity for him to move the other way. He held his rally. He came to Pittsburgh. He did not take a moment to say, we need self-reflection. I need self-reflection. It's time for me to examine what I've been saying from the presidential pulpit. Let's all look at our hearts. Let's all look at what's going on in this country. Let's look at anti-Semitism. Let's stop uh, calling the other names. He had every opportunity to make this a turning point in his president. He has resumed his divisive rallies. That's where he's going. He resumed within hours the language of hate, the language of division, and that is who he and this presidency and his pulpit is. Well, David, I mean, it's also interesting, you know, the, the, the killer here 
uh, was motivated not only by by just a general hate and anti-Semitism, but also this obsession on on the caravan and and uh, you know invaders, you, echoing language that the president himself ha- has used. It doesn't seem like the president has stepped back from that. If anything, he's uh, he's pushing the, the the gas pedal down further, talking about you know revoking birthright citizenship, right. which obviously we'll we'll talk about a little bit later on in, in the broadcast. Um, uh, which is not something he actually can do by, by fiat. But uh, for him to continue to echo the words of, you know, invaders coming, uh, it's certainly not tamping down any rhetoric and continuing to call, you know, the media the enemy of the people. You're, you're absolutely right, uh, Anderson. And also sending in 500 troops uh, on the weekend before the elections, uh, long before the marchers in the caravan uh, ever reach the border. They don't need to be there this weekend. That's a ploy. Uh, and I do, th- I do think that in the background to everything that was happening today, is the fact that many people in Pittsburgh, many people around the country, they don't blame Donald Trump for the particular shooter. They don't hold him directly responsible. But they long for a presidency that has a moral core to it, that, that a president who shows moral leadership. And in the background today was a sense that somehow the president's words of resentment and hate and stirring up resentments, especially among whites, uh, is, is contributed to and was almost, and led to uh, the, the, the door of this synagogue. So I, I do think we ought to go back and think about you know, how Bill Clinton went to Oklahoma City in 1995 and healed. He didn't go after the terrorists. He didn't sort of make a, you know, beat the drums uh, to go out and, and, and stalk the terrorists all around the country. He tried to heal, and it was a turning point in his presidency. He was embattled when he went to Oklahoma City. That turned his presidency around in a very positive direction. I have to wonder whether the fact that President Trump has gone through this awkwardness and he is linked in this way uh, to what's happened uh, whether his words are now going to come back to haunt him in his presidency uh, for the indefinite future. Well, it also seems, Carl, I mean, that, that you know, the president and the White House are very eager to, uh, you know, to move on to be able to continue to focus on the election as he himself, uh, you know, uh, I think it was a tweet uh, days ago before uh, before this massacre talking about how, you know, focus on, on the bombings and other issues had taken attention away from from uh, coverage of politics. Look, uh, Donald Trump is the legitimate president of the United States of America, and he has made no attempt to be the cohesive president of the United States, to reach out to all of the people in this country. And he is back at it uh, with barely a break. After the bombing Uh, events of last week, the mail uh, bombs sent out after this slaughter of Jews in Pittsburgh. He has gone on like business as usual here. This oughtn't to be a time of business as usual, and it oughtn't to be a time of business as usual for Republicans in Washington either. They ought to be speaking out about what this president has done in reaction to the events of the last week. It's very significant that there were no Republican leaders who wanted to come with this toxic president on Air Force One at a moment of what should have been uh, a time of national healing. Uh, Because those leaders understand, though they have been complicit in enabling uh, Donald Trump to do this and to incite with his message, uh, they weren't there today and they need to be speaking out against what Donald Trump has been saying throughout this campaign. 
Yeah. Carl Bernstein, Gloria Borger, David Gergen, thank you very much. Just ahead, we want to uh, broaden the discussion of words and deeds in a climate of violence. Later, the, the president claims he can get around a constitutional amendment with a stroke of the pen. He can't. We know that. We'll talk about why he's making such a dubious case right now, a week before the election. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Our friends at Zenni Optical offer a huge variety of high-quality, stylish frames and state-of-the-art optics starting at just $6.95. You can get multiple frames with this great pricing for less than one pair elsewhere. Start building your eyewear wardrobe from the comfort of your own home at Zenni.com. With the latest trends in eyewear, available in hundreds of frame styles and materials, there isn't a better way to change it up for every season. Plus, Zenni offers prescription sunglasses at incredible prices. Visit Zenny today at zenny.com slash CNN. That's Z-E-N-N-I dot com slash CNN. Well, as we reported, the first funerals in the synagogue massacre here in Pittsburgh were held today, including a service for brothers Cecil and David Rosenthal. The Tree of Life's rabbi said the brothers were the sweetest, most wonderful people with not an ounce of hate in them. No hate. Unlike the suspected shooter who posted anti-Semitic slurs on social media, complained that the president had too many Jewish people around him, blamed Jews for helping migrant caravans in Central America. Hate speech is, of course, nothing new, but there does seem to be a renewed sense of emboldening on the part of white supremacists in Charlottesville and beyond. The Anti-Defamation League says that incidents of public anti-Semitism, including bomb threats and vandalism, rose by 57 percent in 2017. Here's how the mayor of Pittsburgh put it when I asked him if the rhetoric that has entered public life in a way we haven't seen in quite a while has had an impact. Words matter. Um, if you take a drop of dye and put it into a glass of water, it turns the color of the water. When you put words of hatred out in a place where those words had been hidden and recognized as being words that were not acceptable, and you allow that to become acceptable, then you allow the next steps to occur. The next steps where there is violence against people walking down the street, the next steps where there's graffiti being written on walls, the next steps where somebody enters into a place that is so sacred where people go to find sanctuary and peace with God, and somebody feels that is the way that they will express their hatred with murder. Yes, words matter. I want to focus more on what's happening right now in America. Joining me is Nicole Hemmer, who researches hate crimes, and Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League. Nicole, you wrote yesterday that, uh, that the seeds of Pittsburgh were sown in Charlottesville. And I'm wondering, can you just explain what you meant by that? Sure. So one of the things that was so dominant in Charlottesville on August 11th and 12th were anti-Semitic slogans and slurs and symbols. And those things kind of dropped away from the analysis of what happened in Charlottesville shortly thereafter. Um, But I think what Pittsburgh shows us is how important and how central um, anti-Semitism is to white supremacy, especially this new type of alt right white supremacy that we're seeing in America today. Jonathan, I'm wondering if you agree with that about the impact of Charlottesville as we're showing some of the the video of that, uh, you know, Tiki Torch March 
uh, by, uh, by young white men, mostly chanting Jews will not replace us, chanting uh, blood and soil, which is a former uh, Nazi slogan. Has this become more normalized under, in the last two years? It's deeply worrisome. But the fact of the matter is Nicole is right. That rally in Charlottesville, was, which ostensibly was about preserving Confederate statues, degenerated into the chance of Jews will not replace us, with men with torches assembled around the synagogue threatening to burn it down. Anti-Semitism is at the core of white supremacy. And we've seen, as you reported in our stats, this increase in anti-Semitic incidents over the past year. And, you know, to understand the details, we're talking about a nearly 90% increase of anti-Semitic incidences at colleges and universities, almost a 100% increase at K-12 schools. So the words that we hear, they are translating and jumping online to offline and showing up in our communities, on our campuses, in our schools. We should be very concerned. You're, you're hearing of anti-Semitic incidences in, in kindergartens and, and lower schools and middle schools and, and, and high schools? The ADL has 25 field offices across the United States. And indeed, my offices are tracking acts of vandalism and harassment at K-12 schools. It's one of the reasons why we really prioritize anti-bias education in classrooms. Because kids need to be taught that what you might be hearing even our leaders at the highest level saying is absolutely unacceptable if we want a society that's predicated on respect and tolerance for others. Nicole, many of the people who are protesting today certainly feel that uh, the rhetoric that's come out of this administration, the rhetoric particularly from the President of the United States, uh, while maybe not directly responsible for what happened here, but certainly has fueled or emboldened uh, some people maybe with pre-existing ideas or, or with, with hate in their heart. Do you, do you believe that's the case, that, that you know, as the mayor said, that, that the words matter? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that one other lesson out of Charlottesville was, you know, it was a day where everything went wrong in a lot of ways for the alt-right. But the one thing that they took as a victory out of Charlottesville were the president's comments. They felt that they, the president kind of had their back after Charlottesville, and that did embolden white supremacists. I, I would even say it, it radicalized white supremacists and helped how, how them you, not only... How do you know that they ahead. felt that? Is that what you read? I'm sorry, did oh, you hear uh, they, I mean, is that what people were saying online? Absolutely. They celebrated um, in both videos and in statements online the president's comments. Yeah, Anderson, if I can just add on that. You know, at the ADL... We're tracking anti-Semitism online. We have a whole center in Silicon Valley that we built. And indeed, the white supremacists, if you read their words, if you look at what they're saying on Twitter and on Facebook and on these other sites like Gab and 4chan and 8chan, they are celebrating the winks, the dog whistles. They let us know in their own words that they're connecting with them. Hmm. Uh, Jonathan Greenblatt, I appreciate uh, you being with us, and Nicole Hammer as well. Thank you very much. Uh, an important discussion we'll continue to have. Coming up with the midterm election a week away, the president is uh, pulling out uh, all the anti-immigrant stops using the military, migrants seeking refuge, and misinformation. The question, of course, is what impact is it having? Will it work? We'll get into that next. Remember, to create an ad like this one, Visit purewinning.com slash CNN. 
With allegations that the president's rhetoric about invaders coming into the country played a role in the horrific events here in Pittsburgh, Mr. Trump is certainly not apologizing or backing off. In fact, considering that the president just announced he's immediately sending thousands of troops to the border to uh, allegedly stop a group of migrants, the president calls it an invasion, who are hundreds of miles away from the United States. Consider the fact that at least some of the troops are expected to arrive just a day before people go to the polls. Let me just repeat, this main group of migrants who the troops are apparently there to stop are walking on foot and are nearly 1,000 miles away from the U.S. border. Consider now one week from the midterms, he apparently thinks you also should be afraid of babies who are born here and become citizens, saying he can end birthright citizenship, the 14th Amendment, with an executive order, which is not true, according to legal experts. In an interview with Axios airing on HBO this weekend, the president said, and I quote, We're the only country in the world where a person comes in and has a baby, and the baby is essentially a citizen. That also is not true. Dozens of countries have the same situation, but you don't have to take our word for it that the president can't overturn the 14th Amendment or even the word of legal experts coast to coast. Listen to the Republican Speaker, Paul Ryan. You cannot end birthright citizenship with an executive order. We didn't like it when Obama tried changing immigration laws via executive action, and obviously as conservatives... um, you know, we believe in, in, in the Constitution. You know, as a conservative, I'm a believer in following the plain text of the Constitution, and I think in this case the 14th Amendment's pretty clear. Well, joining us now is, you know, Chief White House Correspondent Jim Acosta. So, Jim, I mean, it seems pretty obvious about why the president uh, is suddenly talking about, you know, an executive order about the 14th Amendment. It just seems a week before the midterm, it's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence, Anderson. It is part of the president's playbook for the midterms. He's been advised by people both inside and outside the White House uh, to go after this immigration issue. Uh, This is an issue of birthright citizenship that he's brought up before. Uh, And when he's brought it up before, uh, just about everybody in Washington reminds him uh, that you can't do it through an executive order. That would be unconstitutional. You have to amend the Constitution, and that's obviously not going to happen. It's interesting tonight, Anderson, one of the president's top advisors, Kellyanne Conway, was briefly talking to reporters and said, uh, contrary to the facts out there, uh, that this is an untested constitutional question. Uh, she said there are aspects of this that could be tested constitutionally. And at the almost the very same moment uh, this evening, her husband, George Conway, who is a prominent lawyer here in Washington, was writing an op-ed in the Washington Post saying, no, it is crystal clear this is unconstitutional if the president wants to do it. What about sending U.S. troops to, to the southern border? Again, the caravan of migrant, migrants is still hundreds of, of miles away. Uh, I mean, when are American forces expected to arrive and exactly what role are they expected to play? Well, the White House hasn't really given us uh, any clear guidance as to what the role of these uh, soldiers will be. They've already tried to send National Guard troops uh, down to the border as sort of a a show of force. And as you mentioned, uh, these migrants are about a thousand miles away and they're not going to be here anytime soon. So to call this an invasion, uh, it, it might be the most pathetic uh, invasion of a country in world history if, if this were actually an invasion. But of course, it's not. Uh, we should point out, Anderson, that, you know, we've been told by sources close to the White House, people inside the White House, frankly, uh, will tell you this privately, that they see the caravan issue as one of their big ticket items heading into the midterms. Uh, you've heard it almost uh, repeated non- nonstop. I think the president has even mentioned this at his rallies, caravan and Kavanaugh. They want to run on both of those things heading into the midterms. Uh, but, but unless you are really isolated inside an ideological bubble at this point on this issue of immigration, uh, you, you really can't see this caravan as anything other than 
uh, a lot of people, a lot of migrants trying to escape uh, countries where, in, in some cases, they're escaping from violence and that you have a lot of women and children trying to come into this country and seek asylum uh, to try to find a better life for themselves. And, and at this point, uh, the, the president is saying that's not going to happen and he's trying to sh- offer this show of force. One other thing we should mention tonight, Anderson, the Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, uh, had a rare public appearance. He was, he was appearing at the U.S. Institute of Peace here in Washington. Uh, he was asked a whole range of questions on a slew of issues from Syria to Russia to everything else. He wasn't asked a question about this issue. So it, it doesn't sound very pressing for the defense secretary either. Anderson. All right. Jim Acosta, thanks very much. Joining me now, Good former back. RNC chief of staff and CNN uh, political commentator Mike Shields, CNN chief legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin, and Republican strategist Rick Wilson, author of Everything Trump Touches Dies. Jeff, uh, so first of all, the president claiming he can end birthright citizenship with an executive order obviously seemed from every legal scholar I've heard from a non-starter. I just want to read to the viewers the 14th Amendment, quote, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. He can't change that uh, with an executive order, correct? Well, he not only can't he change it with an executive order, even an act of Congress couldn't change it because the Constitution trumps any other attempt by state or the federal government to do anything. This is a political stunt. Um, it, I don't know whether it will succeed, but the idea that the president could change birthright citizenship, that anyone could change it other than through a constitutional amendment, is simply false. So, Mike, I mean, as a conservative Republican, are you OK with the president saying that he can unilaterally, unilaterally change this, uh, the 14th Amendment of the Constitution? And, and yeah. do you agree with Jeff that I mean, this is basically just about politics and manipulation before the, the midterms? Well, a couple of things. Uh, Senator Graham also lent his voice to the idea that this hasn't been tested. And what what jurisdiction are people under? Are they under the country that they're from or are they under U.S. jurisdiction? But look, here's what this real issue is about. And whether or not you can change it this way or whether or not you have to change it legislatively, this is a legitimate conversation to have because birthright citizenship is being abused. And there are 700,000 immigrants in line right now to become lawful immigrants to the United States from Africa, Latin America, Asia, all over the world. And yet there are loopholes that allow people to get into the country illegally, have a child and become a citizen. Harry Reid, when he was uh, in the Senate, Democrat, not hardly a conservative, said, you know, birthright citizenship is being abused. We ought to look at it. Many of the Republicans running for president in the primaries uh, last year brought this up. So it's not like it's uh, an issue out of left field. And immigration is a defining difference between the two parties. The Democratic Party, uh, their vice chairman wears a T-shirt that says we're for open borders. Republicans watch that and go, wait a minute, we've got to get even more uh, 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 sort of aggressive about how it is we go about protecting the border. Maybe we ought to look at something that's being abused that allows illegal immigrants to come in and, and game the system when there are 700,000 people waiting in line dutifully to become American citizens. That is precisely wrong. And it is important to point out that we actually have laws in this country where there are procedures. If you want to change birthright citizenship, help yourself. That is a perfectly legitimate argument to have, but you have to have it on the right subject, which is a constitutional amendment. To do it as a stunt a week before the election, pretending that you as president have the power to change it, that is not legitimate. That is not a legitimate debate to have. And I think it's, it's demagoguery. It's not policy. 
Rick, Jeff's do you exactly see this right, as yeah. a, this, basically this just a, a stunt? It just as a stunt? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's, this is absolutely a stunt. This is absolutely the president once again doing this, this performative uh, version of the presidency where he throws out red meat so he can start this next news cycle on Fox and elsewhere, uh, pretending this is going to happen. It's not going to happen. Just like the wall and a whole bunch of other Trump things, it's an absolute illusion targeted only to the base-only politics of, uh, of the, the reddest of the red states. And I think what really, what, what's really dismissive here in the president's attitude is that of constitutional fealty. You know, Republicans are supposed to be the party that believes the Constitution is a sacred document that we have to treat with reverence and care. Uh, If Barack Obama had come out and said, I'm just going to get rid of those parts of the Second Amendment by executive order, it was a surefire, would have been a surefire recipe for Republicans to go into an absolute conniption fit, lose their minds for months on end, and and call for immediate impeachment. But Donald Trump is suggesting the same sort of thing. It's It's executive fiat, which we said during Obama over and over again was absolutely anathema to conservative principle. But here we are. Well, can I... So outside of the process of how you do this, outside of the process of how we do this, I would ask my two colleagues, do they think that this, that uh, birthright citizenship is being abused at all? Do you guys believe that it's ever being abused? Mike, Mike, saying outside the process, the whole thing about this right now is the process. The president, as Jeff said, I mean, you can have this debate about birthright citizenship and it's been had before, but the president announcing that he can do this uh, by executive order, you know, is just not true, right? I think, it, I think that this is a defining issue between the two parties going into the right. election is immigration. But and we're you know on CNN it's just not true. I know you're trying so, to avoid the answer. Right. Well, I, I, no, I don't no, know we're if not you on can CNN talking about the issue. Or not. We're, we're, we're talking the about the, the lie that he... You don't know that uh, that he, the president cannot do it by executive order, that he can't overturn the 14th Amendment by executive order. You I, don't know that? It, it doesn't appear so. And, and, when, and, and when Barack Obama uh, uh, illegally claimed that dreamers could just become citizens, that was challenged. And this administration did not want to challenge it in court because they would but have been defending something that they But that was a question of law, not of the constitutional provisions. Right. What, Right. So, this is so, this is a different order. This is a different order of magnitude, Mike. This is the Constitution we're talking about. It's not like popping the hood on the car and playing with the spark plugs. This is the big thing, and so the you know even the president that that is believed to have unlimited executive power in the era of Trump does not have that power well, in this, this country. This, if you I, feel comfortable with that, if there's a Jeff, Democratic president down the line, then you have to sit quietly while they say, no, oh, we're going to change a lot of things about the no. Second Amendment, the First Amendment, the Fourth. I mean, there, there are, there's, this is a bad door to open, Mike. Well, there, it would be challenged in the Je- courts. Jeff, if it's not constitutional, then it wouldn't be allowed. And so I, I'm, I'm fairly comfortable having things go to the courts like the travel ban did. And it came back in a form you know that was actually ridiculous. allowed to be. Right. I'm sorry? Yeah. You know this is ridiculous. I mean, this is ridiculous uh, that 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 for the president to have this discussion. It's purely about just something to throw up a week before the election to stop people from talking about uh, eleven, you know, murdered Jews uh, a block behind me. Well, I, I mean, know, it's I, clearly right. just like I just like bombs that. being sent to just like bombs being sent to people that the president you know singled out and railed against and got stadiums to rail against was not a message the president really wanted to talk about, and he tried to change the subject. You don't believe he's trying to change the subject off of what happened here? No, I don't, in fact. And I think it's. I think so much of what happened there is so tragic, and every time we try to pull it back into a partisan fight, people just put their jerseys on and they ignore 
the real thing that we should be talking about, which is the, the segment you had before, the rise of anti-Semitism, is a real thing we should talk about, and instead it gets dragged back into a right. partisan fight but, but, all over but, again. Uh, There's an election in six right, days. Right. And we're talking and about birthright citizenship the because issues, the president tweeted about it. Yeah, and one of the big issues in that election is immigration. The two, po- the two parties have okay. very, very different approaches to immigration, and that is something that will be voted right. on next week. It's a legitimate conversation okay. now. Mike Shields, I appreciate it. Jeff Tubin, Rick Wilson, thanks very much. I want to check in with Chris, see what he's working thanks. on for Cuomo primetime. Chris? I want to know who the lawyer is in the White House that told the president he can change what's in the 14th <laughs> Amendment by fiat. He said his lawyers told him. Yeah. I want to know who that lawyer is. I think the White House should produce them. And I think that that party, the election is a week away. You're, di- you're analyzing it exactly right. And you're doing it from the right place. Is the whole party on board with Trump's campaign of fear and loathing? Are they? We have a congressman on tonight from that party, a young leader who says it needs to stop. And then we're going to put Cuomo's court in session and we're going to go through the legalities of bringing in the military and changing the 14th Amendment. We'll give people the facts. All right, Chris, I appreciate it. I'll see you in just a couple of minutes. All the victims here in in Pittsburgh touch the lives of others in so many unique ways. Just ahead, uh, I want you to meet someone. I'm going to talk with a man who knew Dr. Jerry Rabinowitz very well. He says he really saved his life after he was diagnosed with HIV back in 1989. We'll hear from him ahead. I'm Andy Katz from March Madness 365, and on this edition of our show, I'll be joined by Syracuse's Tyus Battle. I've been just trying to improve all facets of my game, just being able to be more offensive, throwing the ball different ways, shooting the ball, I think that's improved, and uh, just my playmaking ability as well. Subscribe to March Madness 365 now at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. One of the funerals here today was for Dr. Jerry Rabinowitz, a physician who is a family physician, but he also treated HIV-AIDS patients with care and compassion at a time in America when not everyone did. One former patient, Michael Kerr, posted this on Facebook, writing, Thank you, Dr. Rabinowitz, for having always been there during the most terrifying and frightening time of my life. Michael Kerr joins me tonight from New York. So, Michael... It was in 1989 you found out you were positive. You were actually living in in this neighborhood. Um, How did you hear about Dr. Rabinowitz, and and what made him so different? Well, I mean, you're right. I lived right down the hill from where you're standing. And, you know, Pittsburgh is a close-knit community. We, when those early days of HIV hit, there weren't any real treatable medicines that targeted the virus. So, we put our ear to the ground, ear to the wall. We called our friends and we found out who the doctors were that were keeping us alive the longest. And word of mouth, it was Dr. Rabinowitz. He's, he's, he's at the top of the list. It, it's not an understatement to say, I mean, for people who don't realize what, uh, what being HIV positive meant uh, back in 1981, 82, all throughout the, the 80s and even into the early 90s before protease inhibitors and and uh, and those drugs came online um i mean there early on there were people in the medical profession who wanted nothing to do with people who were hiv positive or people who had aids or or were scared to you know breathe the same air as them you know that was the time when you know you had to hide your health record for pre-existing conditions from insurance companies dr robinowitz had a system though he he knew to put those HIV notes in a little piece of paper on the side. And I, I, I can't help but think that maybe if something happened, 
and somebody came knocking on his door, that piece of paper would have gone away. He protected us. I mean, I can't imagine the fear that you must have felt in 1989, you're in graduate school, you get the diagnosis, and the fear that you must have felt and how Dr. Rabinowitz was able to help you at least combat that fear. I got to be honest with you. There were some dark times. There were some really dark times. And he was always there. And um, he, he, he was just such a brilliant yet compassionate man. He, he's a family physician in the truest sense of what we define family as meaning there's so many versions of family. You're, you're wearing a, an ACT UP pin. ACT UP uh, was a group uh, that, that was instrumental in getting uh, changes in pharmaceutical companies and how drugs were tested, how drugs were brought in the pipeline, along with the Treatment Action Group, which was an offshoot of, of ACT UP. Um, it, it, do you think, do you know, the other thing about Dr. Rabinowitz that, that seems so special is, I mean, he was a very young doctor when he started uh, opening his doors to people who had HIV and, and AIDS. Timing is everything. Um, when, when it was time for him to point me towards a study, if, if it had been six months sooner, maybe um, the drugs wouldn't have been available in that study. Or, you know, it was all about ACT UP, getting it done quick, you know, so those drugs could be, could yeah. reach could be safely delivered for research protocols. So timing was everything and having a good doctor that whatever little there was in the toolbox at the time to treat us, he did it. And just finally, Michael, when you when you heard the news about what happened here on Saturday, you know, the, or the reports are that, that he went to try to help. Uh, he went back in to, to try to help those uh, who, who might have been wounded. Um, I'm just wondering what your your first memory of him was what your thoughts were on Saturday or when you heard the news. It still hurts. I'm never going to see his face. And all those pictures you see of him with the bow tie and his smile, that, that, that's what I remember. And he held our hands without rubber gloves and he hugged us and he, and he spent time with us. And he, he's just, he's a brilliant and compassionate doctor and the world's going to be the world's at a loss, I think. It also makes me so sad just to hear you point out that he would hold your hand without a rubber glove and to think of all those, all those young men and, and others who uh, didn't have their hands held without a rubber glove or, or without a medical professional with, with a mask mm-hmm. on uh, because of, of the fear and the stigma. Um, Michael, thank you very much for being with us and, and telling us uh, about Dr. Rabinowitz. Thank you. Thank you for helping us honor him. We honor him and all the 11 who were killed here. There's many ways to help the Pittsburgh community. The Jewish Federation of Greater Pittsburgh is accepting donations for the shooting victims at the Tree of Life Synagogue. Their website is on your screen. You'll also find it and other organizations at CNN.com slash impact. The news continues. That's it for us. It's been an honor uh, to be here, a privilege, uh, a sad privilege and a painful one. Uh, but we uh, are, are we feel honored to have been able to bear witness over the last two days here. I want to go back to uh, Chris. Cuomo Primetime starts right now. Chris. 
Are you ready to learn how to build a better consulting or professional services company? Then download the Liston.io show for the best sales and marketing advice so you can deliver your services to the people who need you the most. On the show, I'll be interviewing the smartest people in the industry to share what they know about building a better consulting business. I'll also give you episodes where I tell you specifically how to sell your services with confidence and how to transform into an influential leader in your industry. Your happy clients probably want to help you. It's too hard for them right now. You're asking them to do too much of the selling that you should be doing. Yeah, it's going to move. It's going to change. It's going to disrupt you at some point in time. Your most loyal clients are your most profitable. Ready to learn how other people are building the consulting company you've always wanted? Download the Liston.io show spelled L-I-S-T-O-N dot I-O wherever you get your podcasts. Before you go, we wanted to let you know that we just launched the ability for anyone to advertise on CNN Podcasts. You're just a few clicks away from reaching millions of people in a way that you never have before. Advertise for a business event or kick off an awareness campaign for your brand. Start today at purewinning.com slash CNN. Integrating podcasts into your marketing mix has never been easier. Go to purewinning.com slash CNN to get started.